Indeed, one of the decisions to make each year is what groups should we use to do the Advent candle. You know, one of the memories that really stands out in my mind is the year that we had different nations and cultures represented. Remember the Shinkorinkos did it in Russian, and when said the angel said to Mary, and he blurted out real loud in Russian, and uh, the Zhenghian uh, Kwangdoa in uh, Korea, and Shirley McWilliams commenting on Zheng He said in that attire she just looked like a little doll. Of course, she still does, doesn't she? <laughs> Thank you. But how wonderful it is that there's just a reverence that is present, awesome reverence that is present as we honor the birth of our Lord Jesus in that. Well, today, of course, the theme is love. It's God's love for us which motivated him to send his son to redeem us from our sins. And no doubt the most familiar verse in the Bible, one that almost anyone can recite without thinking, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him might not perish but have everlasting life. What a wonderful blessing is that truth. Here's how the original Greek text reads. Hutos gar hegapasen hotheos ton kosmon hote huios ton huion edokan. And the word that begins that, the word hutos, doesn't mean how much he loves, and that's the way we also hear it, God so loved, but it is a, it refers to what just went before. Chapter, the two verses that just went before, and you know what those verses are? They say that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up and that whosoever believed in him would not perish, would not so on and so on. You remember that story when the Israelites had begun to disobey God. God allowed a plague of poisonous snakes to come into their midst. And the snakes began biting people, and they began dying, and Moses cried out to God, and God said, Make a serpent out of brass, put him high up on a pole, and any time anyone is bitten by a snake, let him look at that and he'll be healed. And, and Jesus said, even as that was lifted up, so I must be lifted up. That meant death. I've heard sometimes worship leaders get people all excited and re recite that verse. If I be lifted up, I'll draw men unto me. You know, that's what Jesus said. But then he said he spoke of how he was going to die. And the crowd understood that. They said, wait a minute. We've read that the Messiah lives forever. What do you mean lifted up? But haven't sometimes we heard worship leaders get the crowd all stirred up and recite that? Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men under me. So let's sing, lift him up, lift him up. What we're saying is crucify Jesus, crucify Jesus based on how our Lord used that statement. A startling thing to think about, isn't it? 
the love of God and how that's been expressed to us. You know, this is really a very complicated subject, the, the love of God. Some people, of course, I think make it a bigger problem because they, rather than using, as we said in the last term time I was in the pulpit, instead of inductive reasoning in which you take all the scriptures that speak about a subject and then come together with a conclusion, they grab one little verse or one little word and from that, therefore, they use deductive reasoning and come up with a doctrine that defies and sometimes contradicts what the rest of Scripture has to say. First John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And then in 4.8, the one who does not Love does not know God, for God is love. And some folks have taken that for God is love and said that's the all-defining all defining term that describes God. But that isn't true at all. There are other terms that describe. For instance, Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah said the year that Uzziah died, I was in the temple, and I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train of his robe filled the temple. And there were these heavenly beings flying about saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that's echoed again in Revelation. That scene is repeated. God is a God of love. Love is a characteristic of God. But he's also holy. He's also jealous. Think about that. I found 12 verses in the Old Testament in which God, in describing his relationship with Israel, said, I am God and I am a jealous God, and I'm going to pour out wrath on anybody who gives their love or their worship to somebody else other than me. Speaking of the Israelites, here's one passage, Exodus 20. Verse 5, you shall not worship nor serve them, speaking of idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Exodus thirty-four, fourteen: you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, <laughs> is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And why is God a jealous God? Well, it's quite interesting to notice that in the Old Testament, more than once, God spoke of his relationship with Israel as if it were the relationship between a husband and a wife. Isaiah 54.5, your husband is your maker who is whose name is the Lord of hosts. And in Jeremiah, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. One of the tenderest is in Ezekiel 16, verses 8 to 21. And here's the picture of a man who sees a little girl. She's born. She's still in her blood. Nobody's washed her. He cleans her up, and as she grows up to be a woman, 
He attires her in beautiful and expensive clothing. He puts rings upon her finger and gives her jewels and puts a crown upon her head. What does she do? She melts the precious metal and forms a male idol and begins to worship it. And the jealous God, the jealous God, pours out his wrath. I'll tell you what, if I'd ever seen my wife cavorting with another man, somebody would have had hell to pay. And that's how God views those who are in covenant with him. We're the bride of Christ. And our Lord is a jealous God. Only he should receive our worship and our adoration. He said, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Those of us who were in the study that we did last uh, some month, couple of months ago on the Epistle of Hebrews, remember these verses. If we go on sinning willfully, after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. In chapter 6, for in the case of those, now notice, listen how, how full this description is. The case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If that doesn't describe as redeemed Christian, what does? And then they've fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. Indeed, our God is a God of love. And that was just expressed in the Advent candle. But he is also a God of wrath, a jealous God. And yet, because of his love, because he raised up the Son, because of his love, he has made a means of escaping that wrath. Centuries before Jesus was born, about 800 years before this prophecy came forth from Isaiah 53, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him by his scourging, we're healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, 
he would see his offspring. He would prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Much to think about, isn't it? But isn't that something wonderful? Centuries before, God, through Isaiah, gave this wonderful prophecy. Yes, the wrath of God falls upon sin and falls upon sinners, but he made a means of allowing humanity to escape his wrath. And so we sing this song, till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Beautiful thing, isn't it? Two thousand twenty-five years ago, there was a virgin in Nazareth who was surprised out of her wits almost one day when an angel appeared and nine months later Jesus, the one who was to be the propitiation for our sins, began his life as a human. That was about between 4 and 5 B.C. And then for about 30 to 30 three and a half years approximately. He lived that sinless life, tempted in every point like as we are, yet without sin. And then one day, he went to the cross. He was lifted up. Think of all he went through. For the joy set before him, he endured the, that which he despised, the shame and the horrible pain. For that must be so, you and I can know that heaven is our home and not hell. 1 John 4, 17 to 19, by this love is perfected with us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Isn't that wonderful? We can have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful promise. I do not fear the day of judgment. Not because I have lived such a life that I deserve heaven but because there was one who went to the cross, made propitiation for my sins, 
And one thing I'm thankful about that in my pre-dawn prayers, as I sit just God and Jim, (laughs) from time to time he brings back to my memory episodes in which I sinned, which stirs in my heart greater gratitude that that really has been erased from my record. His wonderful grace that extends to us. One expression of God's love is a chastening that he brings into our lives to help us conform to the image of Jesus. Here again from Hebrews. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He scourges, think of that, scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It'd have to be his son. The daddy doesn't care how he turns out. Listen to this important line. But if you are without discipline, which all to become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if God has not disciplined you, that means you're not one of his children. Think about that. And so God either causes or allows difficulties to come into our lives. And that's an expression of his love because he knows precisely what discipline each one of us needs that we might be conformed more perfectly to the image of our Lord Jesus. Staggering thought, isn't it? God loves us enough to form us. And as the years go by and the Holy Spirit continually works, then we can truly say, I live, I have my being, I live, and I move in the Lord Jesus. You know, I'm 91 years old. I was immersed into Jesus Christ when I was 10. And I'm thankful that God has let me live more now than 81 years because it was February. Because he's had more time to work on me. (laughs) More time to bring discipline into my life. To let me know sorrow and joy and pain. All of these things, his hand forming the wax perhaps <laughs> to make me be more the image of Christ. How can anyone ever express the magnificence of God's love? For every one of us. The lyricist has tried. The love of God is greater far than 
and tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with think the ocean fill and were the sky of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above Would drain the ocean dry Nor could the scroll contain the whole Though stretched from sky to sky Oh, love of God How rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. Oh, my God. How could you ever love a sinner like me? Yet you do. My God, thank you. May God's blessing rest upon you, my brothers and sisters.